So good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Here. It's good to see you. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, talk again. I'm going to just put people on mute so that it won't be disruptive. And Amir Hashem, if you, if you have questions, you could put them on the chat or we'll open it up a little bit later. Okay, good evening. So again, we're talking Pesach preparation for the unprepared, the unusual circumstances of Pesach Tovshin Pei, of Pesach 5780, uh, where many, many, many people's Pesach plans are upended. First of all, we hope and pray and we give uh, bracha to all of us that Bezos Hashem, that that's all that this should, season should bring, just that Pesach plans were upended. But we should Bezos Hashem emerge from this healthy, and safe and strong, and the world should emerge from it strong, as best as can be. And we add our tefillahs for all those who today need a refuah shalema, and uh, and uh, for the prevention of any further, for for the prevention of anything further. So during this uh, during this season of um, you know these change plans, so we've tried to give some extra and specific guidance for Pesach preparation for the unprepared, for people who weren't quite planning to make Pesach, and suddenly found a thrust upon them. We're not going to repeat everything that we've said in the past classes. What we have tried to do in those classes is uh, is convey that cleaning a house for Pesach can be done much more modestly, that this should not be overwhelming, that even now, yes, even now, when it's just uh, eight days till, till Pesach, it's still a job which is very, very doable. And um, we talked a little bit as well and walked a little bit and talked a little bit about the, about the kitchen and, the, and the, uh, the, you know, the preparation of a kitchen. Uh, the preparation of the kitchen for Pesach, we looked at the preparation of a sink. We talked about the preparation of the oven, of the self-cleaning oven, and tried to make things simple, as simple as possible and to understand that they are truly, truly doable. Um, I, I want tonight to address uh, a few things, and as well to be open to the questions of the things that you want me to address. Uh, first of all, I want, to, I want to speak a little bit about a minimalization of preparation for Pesach. What I mean is the following. We've been talking about trying to find leniencies in terms of the cleaning of the house for Pesach. But I want to talk here maybe more like a, 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 a balabasta than a rabbi and speak about what Pesach can really be as opposed to the Pesach that sometimes we are used to or, um, or, believe, it, or believe it must be. Um, you know, Pesach is a yamtiv and we, we like it. We want it, to be, we want it to be regal. We want it to be beautiful. But uh, there were many, and some of the most remarkable Pesachs that were celebrated in, in, uh, amongst Jewish people in Jewish history were Pesachs that were, were much simpler than what, we have, than what we have accustomed ourselves to. And given the situation this year, uh, I think part of what, what has made uh, some of the some of the struggle, understandably, fully, fully, and totally understandably, is uh, is wishing for the perfect Pesach, wishing for the Pesach the way we, we, we like it and look forward to it every year, and having, of course, to dial down those expectations and to have something different. And uh, I, I like to shift to talk about how that something different can look. And, and I want to give you an example, an illustration, of something which I experienced in a story, and this is going to be more general, before we speak about some specific guidance, something which for me was eye-opening. It was eye-opening on a morning when my eyes tend to have a hard time opening. What's that? Uh, a number of years ago, on the first morning of Pesach, I left my house to go to shul, uh, to be in shul at 8 o'clock or so, for the Daf Yaimi, like we do, you know, Baruch Hashem always, uh, to be in shul for the daf at 8 o'clock on Pesach morning. It, it's, it's hard a little bit, especially hard for me, because we're accustomed to elaborate siddurim. And elaborate, not just, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, we have a beautiful feast, 
but uh, elaborate in terms of Vigadita, in terms of the Haggadah, in terms of the discussion and the engagement of the children and of the guests. And, uh, you know, this particular Pesach morning, like typically, I probably went to sleep at 3.45 or 4 o'clock in the morning and with a very full and satisfied feeling that we had done a beautiful Seder, that people were engaged, that we sang and we spoke and we asked questions and we had a game to engage the children so that they were in it, you know, the whole time from the beginning to the end and warm feelings for them and for guests and everything and feeling very, very accomplished. And I walked out of my house and I walked to the corner of Clark's Lane and Western Run to, to go to shul. And waiting for me on the corner, like was often the case, was my very dear and very great neighbor, Zichroyne Levracha, Rabbi Nachman Klein. I had a neighbor two doors down, Rabbi Nachman Klein. Many of you knew him. And uh, Rabbi Klein was a, was, a, was a very unusual person a very, very big Talmud Chacham, very big Talmud Chacham, very big scholar, and a person who had a hobby of collecting fascinating stories about great people, about G'dayle Yisrael. And Rabbi Klein, at this stage, he was older, and he had a hard time walking. And we had a thing where very often um, I would come out of my house on Shabbos morning or Yom Tov morning, and he would be waiting in front of his house in a wheelchair. He couldn't walk up the hill, and he would go to Rabbi Taub's shul, you know, across the street from Bnei Jacob Shari Zion. And uh, we had an understanding, which was a real pleasure for me, that he would wait, and I would, uh, I would give him a ride. I'd, I'd push his wheelchair up the, up the hill, take him to shul, and during that walk, we always had, he always shared with me wonderful things, fantastic things. So Pesach morning, I don't remember what year it was, sometime in the last 10 years, as I'm describing to you, I, I'm taking Rabbi Klein and I'm pushing him up the hill. And uh, he says, "No, you know, so tell me, like, like, when did you finish? And, uh, you know, I always say that there are two times in a year when a Jew meets another Jew and asks, when did you finish? And that is Pesach morning and Rosh Hashanah afternoon. <laughs> so um, so, uh, so uh, we, we, he came and he asked, so when did you finish? So whatever, I said, whatever, when we finished. He said, I want to tell you something I heard from someone. I have to check out to where it was. There was a young man who was an aide, a helper, for this particular time for Rav Chaim Eiser Grodzenski. Rav Chaim Eiser Grodzenski was the absolute acknowledged Godelador in the 1920s, 30s, 40, and he passed away in 1940. He was in Vilna. He was the Reish Kol B'nei an incredibly brilliant person, an incredibly beloved, charismatic person. And Rav Chaim Eiser Grodzenski, uh, he, uh, at the time that I'm telling you this story, he was a widower. He had Loyalenu Rachman son. He had lost his wife. And uh, he and his wife had had one daughter who passed away as a teenager. So he was alone. He was alone. And there was a young man, a yeshiva bacher, who was there to help him a little bit. And this young man reported on the Seder of Rav Chaim Eiser Grodzenski. And you have to understand that Rav Chaim Eiser Grodzenski, if he would have summoned Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Tarfon, if he would have summoned all the great sages of his time, they would have rushed to be around his table, to be able to spend the Pesach Seder together with him. But Rav Chaim Eiser Grodzenski's Seder was, Rabbi Klein told me, was Rav Chaim Gadzenski sat alone. He opened up the Haggadah Shal Pesach, he made Kiddush, and he read the Haggadah. He read the Haggadah to himself with the questions and the answers and the story, and he just read the Haggadah straight from the beginning until the end. He did the mitzvahs, he washed, and he had matzah, and he had mora, and he had whatever modest meal he had. He said the Halil and the songs that we say at the end of the Seder, and then he finished in short order. He finished in short order. And uh, then he opened up the Gemara Psachim, the Talmud Psachim, volume of Psachim, and he started learning it from the beginning. Rav Chaim was a genius. He learned it from the beginning till the end. Then he opened the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud of Psachim, and he learned it from the beginning till the end. So he was up late. But his Seder, in the conventional sense, was short. 
and straight. He read the Haggadah Shal Pesach. He told the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. And that was something which was very big insight, very big insight for me. It's not like as a result of that, I said, okay, from now on, whenever we have a Seder, we're just going to read the Haggadah from the beginning to end. We're not going to have any discussion. We're not going to do that. Chaim Ezekiel wasn't at a table with uh, children or grandchildren. He wasn't at a table with other people, but he also didn't view it as critical to be at such a table. He was able and went ahead by choice, by choice, to sit and in that way remember Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and celebrate that Yom Tov of Pesach. And it's sometimes critical for us to open our minds to a different paradigm. What's the image of Pesach for you? Is it that picture on the cover of, you know, I don't know, the Empire Haggadah or whatever else it is, you know, with the laden table with the big fat knedlach? I don't know if they sit there from the beginning of the meal till the end. It must be, they must be cold by the time they get to them, right? But the, 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 uh, is that the image of the table, the image of people are, you know, sitting around, young and old, and questions and answers? Those are all beautiful images. They are all a paradigm of what a Pesach Seder can look like. But there are other paradigms of what a Pesach Seder can look like. And the more we recognize it and the more we embrace that there's another paradigm, the more we're going to be ready to jump into this Yom Tiv and to do it with the conscience, consciousness, with the commitment to safety, our own and that of the community, that's so, so valuable and so, so important. In the Gemara, it speaks about a person conducting a Seder by himself. And uh, it's a distinct way, it's a distinct possibility. If there's nobody to ask him the questions, so he poses the questions to himself. And so that's the sort of like the, the reka, the framework that I want to just put out there is to, 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 to come to the paradigm shift, not to try necessarily to mimic, to mimic the old thing. I read a beautiful article. One of my sisters in Israel sent me an article that was written by um, one of the sons of Rav Aaron Lichtenstein. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein was, was a, a Torah great. We've discussed him in the past. He was the, was the son-in-law of Rav Soloveitchik, Zichron of Racha, extremely brilliant man and a man of extreme sensitivities. And one of his sons wrote an article you know, to, towards, you know, the same idea that I'm telling you, and said that, you know, we need to have that paradigm shift, that, you know, if we're going to try to do things, I don't know if you know that, you know, it made big, big, splashy headlines. We're on Zoom now, right? So, so there were a few rabbis who, who came out with a ruling that, you know, people could have a Zoom, their Zoom on for Pesach, so they could have the Seder with Zoom with their children and grandchildren, it's a highly, highly, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a ruling which was challenged and renounced by, by, uh, by so to speak, by right, uh, by right to left. There are many issues with it, halachically. Um, we're not talking about where it's a matter of safety or sanity, but where it's a matter of saying that the only way I can have the Seder is if I'm with A or B or C, with children or grandchildren or friends or whatever else it is, and therefore since... They're not there now. We're going to have to find a way to, you know, to, to be there. And, um, you know, the healthier thing is for us to say, hey, there's going to be a different kind of a Seder. Some of you remember that um, about six months ago, we had the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur season. And one of the people I spoke to you about on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, especially on the night of Yom Kippur, but I spoke to you about it over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, was was Rabbi David Trenk. Some of you might remember some of the stories. And I told them to you about him, and I also spoke, Lahavdu ben Chaim Lachaim, about his, his wife, Leah Trenk. Wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, person, outstanding person, who, who, who uh, is uh, an important uh, mentor and friend to, to my own wife, uh, to, to, to Rabbi Tzenhauer. And uh, they were speaking just the other day, and... Uh, she was speaking about the fact that, you know, okay, so this Pesach, for the first time in 50 years, 
besides for the fact that she's not going to be with her husband for the first time in 50 years, because her husband passed away in the summer, uh, but she's also not going to be with any children or with any grandchildren for safety. You know, we've heard that from many, many, many people. Some people who are on the phone right now, who are on this call right now. And uh, it's, a, it's a hard thing. But she said, you know, I have so many beautiful books on the Haggadah in the house. I'm looking forward to the Seder. I'm going to sit at the Seder and I'm going to look at the Haggadah. I'm going to read new things. I'm going to learn new things. I'm not going to be jumping up and down to the kitchen to make sure that everything is done, to make sure that everything is served, to make sure that everything is okay. It's going to be simpler. It's going to be different. And I'll miss, I'll miss some things. But I'm going to have a Seder in this mode, the way it is now. This is what this Pesach for me needs to be. So that's the context which I wanted to try to share with you, to so to speak set the table for what a minimal Pesach looks like in a practical sense. We talked about it now a little bit with the Haggadah, with the Seder. Let's talk about it now a little bit with the kitchen. What do you need for Pesach? People suddenly find themselves needing to be somewhere for Pesach. So we have this we said, okay, people will get new dishes, they can't go to the mikvah, so we have a trick which we will again uh, you know, give people an opportunity to do before we conclude tonight about how to take care of tovaling kalim. But what do you really need to have a Pesach kitchen? You have to make sure the kitchen is kosher for Pesach. But how, how many dishes do you need? If you plan to have every dish that your grandmother made, then you'll need a full a full set of everything. You'll have to make multiple trips to the grocery store to try to find it, none of which is either safe or practical. But on the other hand, maybe you don't need to, to have all that. Maybe you don't need to do all that. Maybe you can't get the pots. So what I would suggest is that we consider the kinds of things that we can do with what we have. It's very challenging sometimes to kosher a very big pot because you don't have another pot to put it in. It's not so challenging to kosher a smaller pot. Uh, I think they call it like a, is it called a saucepan? You know, the smaller pot with the, with the handle that's uh, about yay big. That will probably fit into your soup pot. So you take your soup pot, you clean it well, you uh, don't use it for 24 hours, and then you bring the water within it to a rolling boil, and you can kosher your smaller pot that fits into it. Put, you put on your oven mitt, dip it in the boiling water. If all of it doesn't go in at once, turn it over with that oven mitt that's heat protective, and dip it in on the other side. Run it under cold water like we discussed another time, and that pot is now kosher for Pesach. Amazon won't get it to you on time. You may not be able to get it from somebody else. And when you do, you won't be able to tovel it. But you can have a kosher for Pesach pot. Now, in that kosher for Pesach for pot, you can't make a huge chicken soup. But you can make a little chicken soup. In that pot, you can kosher a few pieces of cutlery. You might want to be environmentally sensitive. It's a nice thing and generally not want to use disposable dishes. This Pesach, we want to use some disposable dishes. There's, we have some in the house. So I think that if we're going to try to be practical and think in terms of a different paradigm of what Pesach has to look like, let's think not about I have to make a whole Pesach. As we've said before, you have to make a nice Shabbos, three days in a row of Shabbos, a modest Shabbos, aluminum foil pans. We, you know, you can have them. They can be, they can be gotten. Um, and again, even without whatever, if people need uh, advice or ways, I'm sure others can give and I can give about how to get them without going into stores. There are many people who 
thought they were going to be with parents or thought their children were going to be with them. Maybe they prepared for them. So they, their children need to be on their own. It would be safer for them to be on their own if they're, you know, if, 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 as is the very strong advice of, uh, of, of physicians, separate households, even if their blood relatives shouldn't be coming together and mixing together because they bring their own circles of exposure to, to the virus. So, you know, leave the food, you know, put aside a food package, give it to the child. The child doesn't have to be overwhelmed by preparing for Pesach if the parent is able to help the child in this way. Preparing, basically, aspirations that are modest in terms of what we need to have. Pesach products, so yes, a few a few things are going to be uh, are going to be are, are are going to be needed that are specifically Pesach product. But a lot, one can look to anybody who will deliver basic staples, eggs, and vegetables and fruits. You know, stores which aren't necessarily community stores uh, that aren't as overwhelmed, but are also overwhelmed. I think anybody who does it through all the different services, there's a bigger wait. Think in advance. But think modestly about what we need, not about the banner Pesach that we wish to have. I think this is a basic uh, psychological, uh, uh, psychological need. Uh, someone mentions here in the chat that Amazon Fresh delivers eggs and produce. Um, and yeah, there are, there are ways and methods like that that, uh, that can work and that will work, and that Bezos Hashem will make it, will, will make it possible. Um, so that's what I wanted to, to say for now. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a trip soon, but before I do that, I want to open it up specifically. If people have questions, practical questions, if somebody even wants to share a suggestion, please use the opportunity to put, put it on the chat. Uh, in the meantime, I'm also going to give a minute here in the middle for somebody. I know that there's at least one person who wants to be mafkir their kalim. And uh, we're going to unmute to let that person do it and somebody else. Okay. Ami, you wanted to do it? Ami? Yeah, hi, Rabbi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. What do you want to be mafkir? If you don't, uh, if you don't have them, do better. Do better. Don't accept ownership of them when they come. In other words, have in have in mind if you're buying if you're buying something now that's being delivered now, you don't have to be mafkarit. Instead of being mafkarit, say you and your wife specifically when it shows up, you're going to bring it into the house, but you're not taking ownership of it. Don't to begin with take ownership of it. Okay. Stuff that you have already that you really need that hasn't gone to the mikveh that you would you would be mafkir. So I have I have I have pots and pans that have been sitting as well as dishes and, and glasses. Okay, so those you those you already have in your possession. Correct. I've, I've had them for years. They just never went to the mikveh. They never went to the mikveh. Okay, so so those things that you need like pots and pans. You should be mafkir. You want to, so you have an inventory of pots and pans. You want to declare now that they are hefker in front of three of us? Correct. Okay. Now the dishes may not need to go to the mikveh. Uh, they're, they're Karel, Karel, should, Karel should go to the mikveh, so you should kasher that too. Yes. You should, you should, you should okay. be mafkir. Excuse me. You should be mafkir that too. And, uh, and the glasses, you'll see. Uh, yep. If you really need them, you could be mafkir them. Uh, I've told people with like regular dinner glasses, maybe use plastic glasses because this is a heter when we for what we really need, you know. Uh, so, so you could be mafkir them, but try not to use that that uh, that leniency if you don't if you don't need to. Okay. 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 So you're declaring all of them hefker, and we accept their hefker in front of three of us. Okay. Shkoyach. Thank you. Did somebody else want to do that before we go on? Okay, 
So I'm going to take you here on a little trip. I'm going to take you on a little trip. You walk with me. Excuse me. I hope I don't get you dizzy. What I'm going to do now is really not so much something which is so particular to uh, this Eretz but it is um, just something which maybe is worth seeing for people who maybe aren't used to making Pesach. And that is, I'm going to actually turn this around. I'm going to turn the camera around to focus on cooking on a stove. Okay, you see it? See it, everybody? Okay. So we have here the stove. Now the stove looks a little bit empty. It is empty because it will go inside the oven, which Sure that this thing is 
exposed properly because that's the electronic ignition and it has to be able to be exposed. We do the same thing for another two layers further down on the stove. Yes. Something that I know from previous, because um, I posture I people's homes, you have to be careful when doing the aluminum foil that people don't cover the vent of the oven. They can melt the whole entire, the top part of the oven where the vent is that comes out. Correct. They, if they put it over it, they'll melt the whole control board. The air, the air holes should not be covered, correct? Because, because of, uh, because of, of that, that consideration. The back, the back part is plastic. And, uh, and if you cover it up all the way with aluminum foil and trap the heat in there, yes, it can, uh, it can, it can cause that, uh, that problem. You have to make sure that the oven is venting, and it's venting onto the aluminum foil as it sits under, rather than trying to, trying to cover it back. I appreciate your mentioning that and pointing that out. Um, hold on one second. Can I ask a question? Yes. So the, the rabbi mentioned running a self-clean cycle. I think most ovens, like the standard self-clean cycle is three hours. Um, does it have to be on that maximum temperature, you know, for that long? Or most most self-cleaning self ovens have, many self-cleaning ovens have different options. And with three hours being the outside maximum option, uh, which it's not critical that it be a three-hour cycle. But not critical that it be a three-hour cycle. You can use a, a shorter cycle. The, the most important thing is, and this is a very critical safety thing is, number one, don't leave it unattended. 
when it's uh, when when you're doing it and number two don't turn it on without looking in the oven first uh you, you don't have to clean the oven but if there's real stuff sitting there in the oven when you self-clean there could be a grease issue and you could you could be creating a problem so just make sure it's you know it's not like you have a mountain of uh of something left in the bottom of the oven when you when you start this the self-cleaning but again stay around don't Start the self-cleaning at, at 12 o'clock at night when you're going to sleep and say, oh, great, it'll be there and I won't be in the hot kitchen. It's not safe. It's not safe. You have to, you have to be monitoring it to a, to a certain degree. Okay. Um, <clears throat> don't the burners kosher themselves just from having the flame on? So uh, it's a good question. And the burners themselves, the burners themselves are not a big issue. Uh, you know that 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 gray part, the silver part, <clears throat> part, are not necessarily a big issue because they carry the flame, but the 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 trivets that are on it certainly need to be kashered separately. Uh, the flame ha- having them on them will not necessarily heat them, you know, to that degree all around. Uh, so they need to be either in the oven. Sometimes people will. Uh, well, they don't want to put them in the oven. They could kosher it by laying a blech up on top of them and, and then setting on the fires to very hot heat and the blech will distribute the heat over the whole trivet and get the whole thing to be very, very hot. But uh, putting them in the oven is simpler. And they don't have to be in the oven truthfully for the whole self-cleaning cycle. You could put them in the oven for, for about 40 minutes or 50 minutes at a very high temperature and that would be enough to kosher them. Are there any other parts of the stove that need to be covered? Control panel, knobs, panels, knob panels and knobs. So they should be cleaned. I don't believe that they need to be koshered. I don't believe that they need to be koshered. You don't, you don't uh, use food for them. You don't, uh, food doesn't go on them regularly. You might see a stain on them occasionally, but, um, but uh, they do not need to be you, you, you When you cover the front of the stove, it goes down a little bit over it. But the panel, the, the 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 knobs could still be could still be visible. They should be cleaned. You should clean them because they could be they could be dirty. Um, and as we said, two 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 layers of foil of regular foil should be on the top of the uh, top of the stove. And generally, we try to do two. There are two reasons for it, but for now, we'll just say that that we try to do two. Someone asked if they can clean their child's high chair that's completely plastic no material, and, uh, and used for Pesach. Um, I assume you're referring not just to the chair, but to the, to the tray of the child's high chair. And uh, a child's high chair can be cleaned, uh, you know, to be used for Pesach. The, the custom, appropriately, is that there should be some covering put on the, on the table of the high chair. You, you clean the chair carefully, and you put a covering whether it's a contact paper covering or something like that, to cover the table because you might put hot food straight down on the on the on the on the table. You probably don't put very hot food because it's for a child, but it could sometimes be. And it's a surface which was used for chametz food. We would try as a basic thing for protection for Pesach is to is to cover the table, cover the table itself. Is someone asked, what happens if the foil rips during Pesach? So replace it. It's not a problem. The, having the oven uncovered for a few minutes while you replace the foil is not an issue. It's only an issue of cooking on it uncovered. Of cooking on it uncovered. Did, did, you, did um, people understand what I was talking about with the minimization of kalim? that are needed not not imagining i just unmuted do people understand the minimization of of kalim and the minimization of 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 foods i hope so oops i hope so okay did you kosher the oven by putting it on self-cleaning cycle the oven gets kosher by putting on self-cleaning yes Yes, if you if you don't have a self cleaning oven, then you kosher it by putting. You have to clean it. You yourself clean, 
and uh, and um, and after cleaning it, so then you run it for again for for forty minutes, fifty minutes on the highest temperature. Uh, that would be that would be the way to do it. And um, many times people have issues because they can't get the oven spick and span clean, which is normal. That's what happens when an oven is used. So when you're left with just black stains that are tough and you, you attack them a couple of times with, uh, with oven cleaner or, some, or 409 and you go and you can't get any further, at that point you can give up. At that point you can give up. Yes. Um, my uh, wife doesn't want to put the uh, grates for our stovetop in the oven during self-clean. So you'd rather just put it in uh, separately. Like put it in. Put it in separately. People sometimes don't yeah. like to do it because it 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 harms the finish on the right. grates. It harms the finish there, on the grates. Is there an order that we should do that in? Like the self clean first and then that, or 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 the grates first and then self clean? Um, it it would be better to self clean the oven first, because then the then the oven is kosher for Pesach and you're putting it in there. Uh, if you haven't self-cleaned the oven and and there's dirt there, so then you, you're 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 trying to kosher the ovens in a non, in a, the 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 burners and the grates in a non-kosher for Pesach oven, so that that wouldn't work. Okay, so self-clean first. Okay, thank you. There's a question: How soon after koshering the oven can you cook in it? Immediately. There's no there's no, there's no uh, space of time that you have to uh, wait between koshering and using. Once it's koshered, you can use it immediately. There's an issue of waiting 24 hours before, before you, uh, you, you kosher something. It does not apply to a self-cleaning oven. You know, it only applies when you're koshering something with hagola, with, uh, with boiling water. Then you need to wait 24 hours. Something which you're koshering by fire, whether libun kal or libun chamur, you don't have to wait 24 hours before you do the kashering. Okay. Um, is, there, is there anyone who wants to be mafkir any more kalim? Anybody have any more kalim? Binyamin, did you have those or, or, or not, not tonight? if you some people don't want to put the grates in during self-cleaning if you put the oven the grates in during self-cleaning it's fine if somebody doesn't want to put the grates in during self-cleaning so then they're going to have to put it in a separate run which is not self-cleaning now presumably they're not going to want to clean the oven before they do that so the oven will still have stuff in it which won't be burnt out during the process and uh and uh, they'll have the grates in there. That doesn't work. So if you're not, if you're doing it not during the self-cleaning uh, cycle, you're doing it in a separate cycle. It should be following the self-cleaning, but not when the oven is not yet kosher for Pesach. Okay, was that clear? Okay. Um, someone asked uh, if they can be mafkir a blender. Okay, so uh, you'll, they want to be after a blender, the, the part of the blender that needs tvila, I guess the metal blades, etc. Um, okay, so you want to just raise your voice and just declare that you want to be after the blender? Yes, I'd like to, please. Okay, I think well, three of us will prove. Aye, aye. Okay. Okay, a Hefker blender available. <laughs> okay very good very good so again i want to just uh, wish everyone encouragement uh as uh, as this pesach you know takes shape and even if it's a different um 
a diff- different shape than it was than it was expected to, but Mir Hashem it'll be a good shape and one that we're going to be able to uh, to to accept. There was there, there there's another question which popped up here that I want to just address before. When we do agol, are we dipping the not yet kosher for Pesach utensils in a kosher for Pesach or not kosher for Pesach pot? So it doesn't have to be a kosher for Pesach pot. It just has to be. Okay. I will mute. Ouch. Okay, I'm sorry. Mute uh, the, the feedback. <coughs> it does not have to be a kosher for Pesach pot. It just has to be a clean pot that hasn't been used for 24 hours. If it's a clean pot that hasn't been used for 24 hours, you can use it for agola. So as I was discussing before, if you're if this is surprise Pesach and you don't have Pesach pots, so your big pot will be hard to kasher. You can kasher it. You can bring it to a rolling boil and then have the boiling water spill over the sides. And But that's a holy mess. And some people don't like to do that or don't want to do that fully. So instead, you can just kasher your bigger pot, your smaller pot in your bigger pot by doing that piecemeal. And that is... Uh, that you could do without kashering the first pot, just it should be clean and not have been used for 24 hours, as would be the same with the pot that you are kashering in that way. Someone wants to ask a question about burning chametz. Go for it. Hi, Rabbi, it's Ami again. Um, I, someone had said, I don't know, my wife made a comment that she heard that um, they were saying not to use the fire pit for burning comments. I wonder if that was that an accurate statement? Because I have a big fire pit, like a brick fire pit in my backyard. Can I use that, or am I supposed to use the barbecue? Um, you know, the 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 uh, the the, ra- the rabbis suggested together. I mean, not so many people have fire pits, I think, um, but suggested together that we you know we don't want to be creating a lot of fires in the neighborhood. Uh, our emergency services need to be available, busy with other things. For years, we have had a communal chametz burning in one location, which obviously we're not having this year. And the way to, to do things in the safest form is one of two ways. And that is, someone who has a barbecue grill, take small 12, you know, the 10 small pieces from Badika's chametz and put it on the barbecue grill and burn them there. And that's very contained won't create big smoke and, and, and fires in the community, and won't, won't lead the next person who doesn't have a fire pit uh, to just make a little fire on the sidewalk or you know, in the grass someplace else, which could lead to problems. The grill is a very contained and, uh, and simple environment, and let's try to keep it simple that way. I think that's the best way. People who don't have a barbecue grill could take their chametz and flush it down the toilet, and that's, that's where we're going to do beer chametz. Someone asked how many more parts to this series are there, and I'm not 100% sure. Um, We'll try to do uh, hopefully one or two. Somewhere in here we're going to be having the Shabbos Hagadol Drasha, you know, in one of these installments, maybe Matzei Shabbos. Um, But uh, I I would just encourage you, if there's something that you want specifically covered, you can send an email. Um, I do also want to just say, take this opportunity to note, uh, with apologies, that um, the number of emails that that uh, I have received for the different things that are going on now, um, at least for me personally, sets some some kind of record, um, and I just I haven't been able to get to everything. Bezos uh, Hashem, nothing. Uh, I, I, so I apologize for the delays. People who have reached out about Mechiras Chametz and I haven't yet acknowledged it, I apologize. It's all duly noted, and Be'ezos Hashem Yisbarach will be all duly noted. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll get it all done. Um, but please forgive me the delays. But if there's some, if the, I, I usually get to glance at it, I don't always get to respond to it uh, right away. And if there's something that you want discussed in a future class, you can send me a short email, and I'll, I'll make note of it. Does the kashered pottery utensil need to be rinsed in cold water after koshering? Yes, we've said in the past. And that's important that the minig is that after you dip the hot the, the pot in the hot water or the fork or the spoon or whatever in the hot water, that you should then afterwards dip it into cold water. To kasher the sink with a chametz kumkum needs to be not used for 24 hours. So here, I think you can be a little bit more lenient 
because the chametz kumkum is not really so chametzdik. It's just a, it's, um, you know, maybe it's used around chametz, so make sure it's clean, and then you can use it to kasher the sink. It's not really a chametzdik dish. I wouldn't recommend using it on Pesach to cook your Pesach stuff inside of it, but for kashering, if that's what you have, those metal kumkum is a term for those who aren't familiar, which is used for the, those electric plug-in kettles which are really the greatest thing in the world for kashering. And uh, some people don't have one for Pesach because you, know, you can't use it on Yantav anyway, so they don't have it for three days of Cholomoyed. Um, and and uh, if you have a chametz one, just make sure it's nice and clean and that would be the greatest thing to use to kasher your sink. Yes. Okay. Uh, Rabbi, if we don't have that, what's the, I mean, you just take a pot? Uh, if you have any kind of a kettle, that's kosher for Pesach or any yeah, kind of a you you know it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be a kettle it could be a pot, anything which you have that cooks up hot water that hasn't that is clean that has that is either kosher for Pesach or hasn't been used for twenty four hours, um and and uh, just if you use a pot, sometimes it's a little bit more efficient but it's a little bit trickier to be handling a pot that's filled with boiling water and you have to be very very safe. The kettle's a little bit, a little bit easier to handle carefully, so that's why I usually recommend the kettle of some kind. Yeah, we do have a kettle. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Okay. So someone said that what works for them is boiling a huge pot of water and then taking a small pot as a ladle. Uh, I, I'm, I have to say, I'm not sure that that works. Um, I'm not sure that works. You, 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 you probably need to pour directly from the Kli Rishon, from the, from the pot in which it boiled. Uh, when you use a ladle, it's not simple because it downgrades the, the heat quality of the water because it's no longer in the pot that it cooked in. So when it's in the kettle, when it's in the pot, that's going directly on the sink. That's a better way to do it. Um, now, if you, if you, oh, okay, so you've addressed it. You let the small pot pool in the large, so if it sits in there for a while while it heats, so then that's, uh, that would remedy it. That would make that into a clear reshone. Um, okay, I, I would still venture to say that I think that if you can have a kettle, it might be a safer, it might be a safer way, just physically safer way to, to do it. Okay, it's been, a, it's been a pleasure to be with you, and... Uh, Thank you for joining, and thank you for, for your strength. And Bezos Hashem, everybody should have a beautiful and a meaningful yontiv, and L'shana uh, Abba Yerushalayim, as was expressed, expressed and wished, and we, uh, we thank you all. Okay, good night. Thank you, Rabbi. Good night, thank you.